You are listening to a Geek Network interview. Be sure to hit the follow button to get notified when a new episode is available. You can also visit us at geek-network.com for your guide to the geek entertainment news you love. Created for geeks, by geeks, and remember to always geek responsibly. Hello, listeners. Uh, you guys are tuning in for another episode of Fandom Sessions. Today, we have very special guest, Michael Avon Oming. How are you doing today? I am doing well. And sick uh, Game of Thrones bug, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners who don't know or who aren't familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Elevator pitch, go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Michael Avon Oming. I'm an artist and writer best known for my work with Brian Michael Bendis on the creator-owned series Powers, which we did for like over 20 years. And it's it's run through every single major publisher. <laughs> um, and you can currently get the the, the trade at, uh, at Dark Horse Comics. Um, I also wrote some Red Sonja, Thor Ragnarok, a lot of creator-owned stuff of my own over the years. Worked a lot with my, my wife, Taki Soma, on books and currently doing this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> that, that is an extensive, you know, portfolio there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've been around professionally for 30 years. So it's, it's, uh, there's a lot. Sometimes it's hard to know what's even relevant anymore. <laughs> what you mentioned and not mentioned, you know. As one as yourself that's been around professionally for so long, how did you happen to get started? You know, what launched this career for you? You know, as a kid, were you just drawing superheroes or, you know, writing short stories or poems? Yeah, it was exactly that. I mean, as a kid, uh, I was an introvert and I discovered comics relatively young, like sort of around 12. And there was a bunch of like stuff going on in your life. So like the the typical way a lot of people end up reading comics or kind of getting into comics is you kind of you go to them for your your escapism, right? <laughs> and and I had been kind of drawing off and on before that, nothing too serious. I was very influenced by mom who, who drew a lot. And uh, one day I got my hands on some Spider-Man comics. I just started tracing. And just a month or two after that, I got a copy of I'm not a person who could rattle off comic book numbers and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. this is the, the few that I can was um, X-Men Annual 9, uh, which was drawn by Arthur Adams. Um, and then New Mutants number two came out, which was the second part of that. And they go to Asgard. So there's oh. a lot of, there's all of my stuff is all right there. So yeah. all of my love for mythology really blossomed out of that, out of that, that book and that adventure of the superheroes going into an Asgardian world through another dimension, which is something that's that's in a lot of my work. Arthur Adams was such an influence. I just wanted to be Arthur Adams. Like, like I was tracing his work and it was just always Art Adams. Like that's all I wanted to draw, right? It's just be like Art Adams. But Mike Mignola was also in that book. He was he was inking, uh, one of the inkers, the many inkers on Art <laughs> Adams' work for um, that, that first book. And the two of them, like Art Adams is why I want to become a comic book artist. And, and Mike Mignola, I've just been in the school of him. I consider myself uh, <laughs> like being a student of his since the early 80s. You know, I was I was influenced mm-hmm. by, by Mike because like early on in the early and mid 80s, especially mid 80s, when I was really getting the comics, the Marvel house style was a little bit washed out, you know, and, and I don't mean that as an insult to anybody. There's lots of great artists who are working then, you know, they're just all 
you know, they've got their, um, the basics are so strong, but there wasn't a lot of style then, you know, anybody who stood out and, and Mignola, Art Adams, Rick Leonardi, a handful of others, Michael Golden, they, they stood out to me. And, and those were the cats that I was like really in tr- and just, uh, just fell under the spells and, and both Art Adams and Mignola were, were, were two of them. And then obviously the, the Mignola stuff really kicked in with me even stronger as I got older and I got more into mm-hmm. abstract shapes and negative space and black spotting. And um, that's kind of how I got started into comics. I immediately just started sending my work. I didn't think of it as work. I just immediately started sending my drawings out to editors and to artists and writers and stuff through the comics. So I would find the address mm-hmm. in the books and then write to those editors and sometimes the writers to, to, to get like, tell me what, what am I doing? Right. What am I doing wrong? Um, and I, and I, right. I had great pen friendships with a couple of writers and artists and, and editors, Bob Shrek, Diana Schutz uh, are two of them who knew me from when I was like 13 or 14. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just sending in my work and they would write back to me and, and give me pointers on what I was supposed to do. One of these editors that I sent stuff out to was this for this small company called innovation and this is, you know, back in 89 or something like that. So they didn't know that I was a 14-year-old kid and uh, <laughs> they hired me to ink. So that was my, my first job was I was I was 14 years old. But it, this also tells you a lot about my life at the time. I was very much just, I kind of shut out everything but the drawing, you know, like it was mm-hmm. just, you know, it was a typical kid growing up, typical kid in the 80s, just growing up in a single household, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. Home. It was me and my mom. So it was just, I was just drawing so much. I was cutting school and, you know, <laughs> I didn't hang out with friends or anything like that. Not very much anyway. And uh, I just so concentrated on the comics that, yeah, I, I started work when I was like about 14. And then when I was 16, from 16 on, it was just regular work. You know, I was just, mm-hmm. I was full time comic book artist. Man, that's incredible. That's awesome. So, yeah, you've really been in it for a long time. That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, I was, I feel blessed though. Like, I don't say all this as like a, any kind of braggy thing because, first of all, that work's not good. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> persistence is more important than talent, you know, and I still mm-hmm. believe that because there are plenty of people, lots of talent who just, they, they, they don't appreciate it or they don't do the work, you know. Um, so I'd rather see somebody who's just hungry for it be successful than somebody who's just naturally born to do the, you know, beautiful art and beautiful writing, but just doesn't try very hard you know right um, so i was definitely a child of persistence and that's how i got <laughs> through and it's all i thought about was getting in comics and working in comics yeah so uh, I, feel, I feel lucky is what i'm saying i i, I feel lucky mm-hmm. that i found it at an early age mm-hmm. and kept me focused at a, at a very early age yeah and just to go back on uh what you said i i mean i have some comics uh i mean they're not very good just throwing it out there but i remember on the back end you know it said like send your submissions or you know any notes to the editor you know would have the address and you just mail in a letter i you know yeah. and now we don't get that too often nowadays yeah it's weird i mean it's i mean social media has been great because you have a, a more of a direct line to 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 the editors and to artists and stuff so i guess it's I guess it's better you know but it's like as time and things change there, there's something that you do lose at the same time, you know, I mean, I, I think this is better, mm-hmm. um, but um, yeah, there's some, there's something that gets lost along the way, you know, it's, yeah. you know the, uh, looking forward to a letters page, you know, certain books just knew how to do it. Like my friend, Brian Bendis, mm-hmm. when he started out and he'll be the first to say he was overly snarky and all that, you know, <laughs> uh, so he loved busting balls and stuff, but it was just the most fun 
place you could be. It's like, it was almost people would buy powers almost because of the, the letters page, you know, and, <laughs> and, you know, getting a narrower, a more narrow access to creators can make it more special. You know, um, when you know what they've eaten every day for lunch and what their thought is on every <laughs> political thing or social thing, or, you know, what kind of clothes they like, you know, after a while, you just don't care anymore. You know, right. <laughs> there's always this mystery. Like I used to make up stories in my head of like, wow, who is Art Adams? What is he like in his real life? <laughs> yeah. And now you know everything about everybody. So maybe that's the thing I'm talking about that kind of got lost between the difference in those, those you know, letter columns versus um, today's access to everybody and YouTube channels and all of that stuff. Yeah. And then uh, just to touch up on that point, um, I will say this because uh, I know, and I know it's not your work, but um robert kirkman uh he did a, a great thing where you know releasing uh the walking dead sometimes it was weekly uh <laughs> monthly or bi-weekly and uh they would still actually with skybound they would still have that whole like letter to the editor so he would answer fan questions at the back page especially and yeah. a compilation on the uh if you got the big trade like volume you know say 17 or whatever you know yeah. and have couple of pages answering those questions, which I thought was nice. And that should still come back, you know, because you can't filter everything and shout out everyone on social media. You're, no, you're, you're right. I mean, with social media, that stuff is, it's, it's vapor, right? So like um, when I'm promoting work, like I'll tell people, like I will post that you can pre-order such and such a book, uh, Blue Book as a good example of this, mm -hmm. um, six times a day on Twitter. And so other creators like, oh my God, people must be sick of you or blah, blah, blah. And I still get people going like, I didn't know that was coming out because like, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, these things are like, what you, you're looking at, if you're on it for a long time, maybe you're looking at like an hour's worth of, of time during the day, maybe, but most people mm -hmm. are doing five or 10 minutes at a time. Um, so you just miss everything. So while fans have access to you and they can ask you specific questions, right? They, that one person will see it and a handful of others. But your, your other fans who would be just as interested in that question aren't, which is why, you know, it was smart of Robert to keep going with those newsletters, like, like pick out those questions, you know, that are universally interesting to your, to your viewers. I think it still holds value in, in, a, in, a, in a comic. And um, yeah, it would be nice if we saw more of that because, you know, all the, all the access that we have now is, is very uh, fleeting, right? Right. And uh, I know... A lot of content creators tend to do a uh, Reddit ask me or anything where they, you know, just block out, you know, about 30 minutes, about an hour just to answer questions. Have you done anything similar to that? No, because I maybe it's my own stubbornness. Like, I don't understand the ask me anything like you're online. Right. <laughs> you have a, a forward facing social media site, usually <laughs> in three or four different places. And now it's an ask me anything. As, what was before? <laughs> you know, what is the rest of the day? I did do one of those things once on for my YouTube channel, just because I know that people like the live things and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. but, but, um, I'm open and people ask me anything, anytime. And, and I'm, I'm always, my DMS are even open, you know, um, that really? accessible. Um, yeah. Well, you heard it here. His DMS are open. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean I'll write back to everybody or anything. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I like to be accessible. I don't like to spend every minute. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and there's 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 also just that weird cult of personality thing where people want to kind of hide all the secrets behind the curtain and not tell people how you do things or how you're feeling and stuff. And you know, I want to be accessible as possible because when I was a kid, getting back to the letter writing thing, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
these these other creators gave me their time and they they showed me the tricks and they told me what worked and what didn't work and stuff. So I always want to I always want to pay that forward to other people. That's awesome. Again, we don't get that often, you know, too often. And we did get a little bit sidetracked, so I'm sorry. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> just had so many questions, uh, follow-up <laughs> questions. Uh, my icebreaker question for you is, since we're talking about your new book and uh, some of your previous work, uh, work, but we are touching on your new work, I want to go ahead and ask, if you were to get abducted and they truly come in peace, what questions do you have for you know the alien species? So this is probably too heartfelt and too emotional for your air question. <laughs> but uh, my, my wife has uh, multiple sclerosis. So like, I would mm-hmm. want them to like, just cure, just cure that, you know, take care, take care of that. Like I want to get abducted uh, so that that can happen, you know, <laughs> otherwise I just, I, I have weird theories about um, aliens and the, <laughs> the way it works. You know, I think that the universe is much stranger than uh, we could ever imagine, you know, I, I think my most woo theory about things is that we live in a kind of consciousness driven universe. Because when you look at like the UFO history, it seems to morph and change with the times that it's in. During the 50s, there's a lot of stories about, you know, ships landing and leaving circular patterns from where their, their landing pads landed, uh, mm-hmm. sounds of rocket ship stuff, nuts and bolts technology. And, and now, You've, I don't know the last time I've heard of a, of a story that was reported where a UFO had landing gear, you know, now they're all light ships and stuff. And it's all this is kind of the crazy thing. So I don't it whatever's going on. I think it's much weirder than being visited by people from another planet and stuff, you know, not, not that that mm-hmm. can't happen, but I think when you look at the field in total, it's, it's too weird to be able to, it's, it's just too, um, too much vapor to, to nail down to, to one thing, you know? And it could be nothing like by the consciousness driven thing, it could all be part of our own minds. I, I don't know how to explain it better than that. And not to say that people are crazy or if they're making stuff up <laughs> or they're delusional, right. but there's, there's, you know, the minds are, are weird things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Also, we well, said the boring that. answer. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the biggest thing is like, you're such a sweetheart. That, that is like the biggest thing you can do for someone, especially if you love them, you know, like, yeah, you know, please cure my wife. That is amazing. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, I've heard stories. There are stories of people supposedly mm-hmm. being cured of stuff if they've been abducted. So, like, that would be the first thing on my head, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> and I don't know if that's coming from my neighbor's house. I don't know if it's picking it up, but it sounds like water running. So, if it gets a little bit weird, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's right on. My UFOs and, like, NSA starts tapping in. <laughs> That'd be great, right? Yeah. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I'd bore the crap out of them, yeah. <laughs> See, watch and, that lander again. No. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when writing uh, Blue Book, did you and your creative team interview some of the witnesses? Um, I know you did the art, but did uh, you get to talk to some of the witnesses of the truly out of this world experiences? Or, you know, did he watch a lot of uh, ancient aliens, uh, watch the documentaries or just, you know, because the Internet is accessible to our fingertips. Uh, did he just do a lot of uh, online research for for both of you guys? For, for both uh, James Tinney and I, we, we were very well versed in this whole thing. Uh, we, we share a, a very similar love for it where um, not speaking for James, but I think he, he thinks of along the same lines as I do is. He doesn't necessarily believe or not believe. Uh, it's more it's the fascination over the stories and over the experiences that people had. 
Mm -hmm. um, so we probably could have written this without any research, but I do know that James and with help of um, Greg Lockhart as his editor did a ton of revisiting the early Blue Book uh, cases. Now the Blue Book cases, in case people aren't familiar, was the uh, the Air Force ran a program in the 50s and 60s um, that that researched uh, UFO reports and they did official reports and they tried to explain and unexplained things and such. So James went through a lot of those records and stuff, uh, especially with the, our first story arc, the Betty and Barney Hill case, which technically isn't a blue book case, but it, it still is around that same time period. It ties into the theme of what blue book is about. And doing research on them was super interesting because this it's such a compelling case. Not only is their story for being unbelievable that it's believable, but you take into the context that their lives at the time. And this is an interracial couple in the in the 50s who were coming out and saying stuff like they were <laughs> abducted. So like mm -hmm. it's hard enough being who they were when they were, and they were involved in like social movements and stuff. And you know, people were getting killed back then over that stuff, over right. civil rights. Um, and there they are, you know, saying that these things have happened to them and, and going public with it. They had so much at risk to do that. And they got so much humiliation and people did come come after them, especially Barney, like saying that he was stupid and that, you know, Betty was making these things up and sort of accepting him like she was some, you know, evil, you know, manipulator. And he's just a dupe and like just crazy, insulting stuff, you know, instead of just listening to the story, you know, just figuring and going from there. So they had so much at risk, which is one of the reasons why this was such a, a compelling story. My research had to do a lot with the, the visuals, especially with mm -hmm. um, Betty and Barney Hill. You know, I became really, really attached to them because you start to understand their story and, and the, the aspects of their lives. And then some of them mm -hmm. remind me because they're my parents' generation of, of them. And, and so I really became sort of emotionally attached to these characters. I wanted to do everything I can to treat them, not just with respect, but like, with love, I guess, you know, like yeah. I, I really felt from at the end of the story, the, the way that James, James tries to keep everything factual. Like there's, there's no sort of made up things to make things more interesting mm -hmm. or more crazy or anything like that. He did have to wrap up the story at the end with something about the characters, you know, mm -hmm. and it was very emotional and, uh, and I loved it. So a lot of research, but we're already in that world. So, you know, mm -hmm. the research just to kind of get things right. We might talk to some people in the future because like, like everybody from the Betty and Barney Hill had, incident has passed but we're looking at like rendlesham forest which was sort of the uk's version of area 51 and, and the crashes there all, all those people from the, the the roswell stuff are all passed right but you know there, there are when we do have some access i do have some access to some of these people so maybe we'll get to, to actually speak to them you know um and then if we catch up with what's happening today with all the sort of uap the balloon stuff and all this stuff um yeah <laughs> And what's in, you know, so obviously there's people there to talk, talk to. And what's really interesting is, you know, this, this old saying about how history repeats itself, everything going on right now seems very much like the, like the fifties. You have that, you have the government and, and the air force making official statements. And early on, it's like, yeah, we don't know what these things are. You know, that, you know, they're not, they're not, right. they're most likely off planet stuff or whatever. And then backtracking, you know, and then there's this weird mixture of truth and disinformation and, all of which I think is relatively benign. I think because the, the Air Force and uh, the government is just so used to layers and layers of firewalls and secrecy and the the, the ego and power that comes along with mm -hmm. you know controlling your information <laughs> and your fiefdom within the government. Like I don't think it's like oh we need to keep the people in denial or whatever. You know I think it has <laughs> more to do with um, 
you know, this guy doesn't want to know what the other guy wants to know, you know? Right. <laughs> I think it's secrecy for the sake of secrecy, uh, but that also breeds all the conspiracy and the theories because it's it gets all muddled, you know. And then you find out stuff like that the uh, I'm I'm sorry I don't remember which branch of the government, but there there has been the purposeful purposeful misinformation of using UFO reports to cover up um, real experimental aircraft, like nothing crazy, but you're talking about like the SR fifty one or whatever that was, and these other jet planes and, you know, they would purposely, you know, tie in people in the UFO communities and their sightings with these things, because it made it easier to just cover up as either a lunatic fringe or, you know, they'd rather you think it was aliens visiting them than to think that, you know, um, we have ships that can hover or go Mach five or whatever, you know, yeah, it makes sense. Use that, use that to, to help keep your secrets. Yeah. To kind of, you know, touched back on that too. About two or three weeks ago, they released uh, the audio from uh, one of the, you know, spy balloons, even though they couldn't really mm-hmm. identify what it was, where it was moving sporadically. They couldn't really hold a target on it. You know, if yeah. they shot at it, you know, the fire kind of dismissed. So it's, yeah, it's insane what's really going on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. And again, we're just sort of seeing all, all of the same stories from the past, you know, in, in the past, the government, they, they tried to explain Roswell officially. There was an official Roswell explanation from, I don't remember if it was, I apologize again, I remember CIA or, or FBI or Air Force or whatever, probably the Air Force. Um, and it involved um, weather balloons and hot air balloons and dummies, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all sort of the same sort of stories and stuff. And whether it's true or not, um, that's also interesting. That's what, what I love about like sort of fringy stuff is, there's this constant mixture of, of truism facts and this vaporous other stuff that leads you to thinking of crazy things, you know, right. A really quick examples is this unfortunate train accident that just happened in, in uh, Ohio. The most bizarre coincidence is there's this film called white lies, white noise on Netflix. And it is about okay. a crash train derailment. It was filmed in the same town and many of the same townspeople participated in the film as extras. It was filmed there and um, I'm forgetting the name of the town. I apologize. <laughs> um, and I checked the source several times and it's like on mainstream sources, like it was filmed there. So now it's just this dark coincidence. It's this horrible, dark coincidence, but it's such a horrible, dark coincidence. How does human nature stop from connecting lines and, and thinking something was going on here? Yeah. Where conspiracy stuff happens, whether it's good or bad. Um, this is what, where I think a lot of the UFO stuff comes into play too, like alien, possible alien stuff, because sometimes that's a weirdly more easier explanation than you know whatever else it could be. Just weird stuff happens. That's <laughs> weird stuff happens, and people don't want to believe that there's a such thing as as coincidences, no matter how bizarre they are. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. So this is kind of not really off topic. Just a question that came up. Uh, how do you feel a lot of the movies uh, that, or maybe like mockumentaries that have like, oh, you know, true alien sightings, kind of thinking back to uh, the fourth kind in Alaska where they had a lot of alien encounters, but then mm. five years later, the entire movie gets debunked and it's not true. <laughs> you mean like uh, mockumentaries or like, like fake so- Thick films like uh, I remember uh, Mila Jovovich was uh, the narrator for the movie, um, actually started in the movie, and then it was just like a whole sci fi thing. Said it was, uh, you know, true events, but then, oh, yeah, 
they debunked the entire movie a couple of years later. <laughs> well, it's one of the reasons why, why like, um, even back in, I think it was 2017, um, was when the, there was this UAVP report from uh, the government again. I apologize. I think it was the Air <laughs> Force, whatever. And it literally said that there were objects in the air that they couldn't figure out what they were. And they weren't Chinese and they weren't spies from Russia. They weren't drones, right? And like basically, and then they released those, those, those videos that are around right now, the gimbal video and the GoFast video, these other objects being filmed and people reacting to them. When those came out, like a lot of people like, oh my God, this is the beginning of what they call disclosure, where the, the, the government is going to disclose like what's been really going on and stuff. I was very calm about it because I've, I've seen this show before. <laughs> uh, and what you do is like, whenever something crazy comes out, just sit on it. You just wait mm-hmm. because yeah, like exactly what you're talking about. Like oftentimes things are a hoax or out of context. So you just have to wait. And there's, there's no reason to get too excited. Even when all this UA, the, the, the stuff with the balloon stuff was happening early on, it was just like, well, just gotta wait to see what, what happens or what it means, you know, but right. we tend to get excited and run forward, you know? So yeah. So all those things like they're, yeah, whatever, you know, if I see a video, it doesn't get me excited because it doesn't mean anything. Chances are it's faked anyway. You know, mm-hmm. if it's too clear, it's faked. If it's not clear enough, it's faked. And, you know, it used to be that photos and, and, and film was like the, the thing that everybody wanted. And now it's almost like the worst uh, form of, of, of information we could get because it's, you know, so easily manipulated. So yeah, those things are interesting. You know, I'll keep an eye on them when they come out and then you just kind of wait, <laughs> file them away and see, see what happens. All right. <laughs> That's a good answer. I like it. No, I, I like it. So <laughs> Um, just want to go back a little bit. Uh, you've already mentioned, uh, you know, Betty and Barney Hill, uh, the entire incident, mm-hmm. this is covered in your series, uh, which I love. I'm excited to read the series. I'm so yeah. sorry. My local comic book shop did not have it in stock. So I was unable to get a copy. I might go digital. I just love, you know, holding something in my hand and be able to flip the yeah. pages and read it. Yeah. But that incident is covered everywhere, at least loosely based everywhere in pop culture from many movies, TV shows. And again, taking influence from from this event in history, besides uh, presenting this comic in comic book form, what else did you and James uh, do in order to differentiate from other forms of media? Mainly, we just tried to stick to the facts as closely as possible. And, and you'd be shocked at how rare, how rarely that's done. And these stories are already fantastic enough and crazy enough. It always surprises me that they'll just add more than it needs to be, you know? Mm -hmm. So that, I think that's really what's, what what puts us apart is that we're trying to be as, as truly journalistic as possible. Um, We're not adding anything to the story, you know, like there's a film called fire in the sky, which I really like. It's it's based on a very good eyewitness account abduction that involved multiple people and guy went missing for like five or six days or something like that. A great film, really entertaining, but they made up a lot of stuff that happened in the ship that they just didn't need to, you know, they just did it for for Hollywood reasons and stuff. But I, I think if you right. look at the material itself, it's super interesting. Yeah. And, and I think that's what sets us apart was we just didn't add anything to it. We just told the story as, as straightforward as possible, including stuff that might lean towards that it wasn't an alien story or whatever, you know, just mm-hmm. based on their experiences and the stresses they were under. Like Barney was under incredible stress. He had like, like these it's crazy postal job with like this crazy long, like commute and stuff. And, um, he had, uh, he had a, a son who he couldn't see, you know, so he had emotional stuff going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't think this means it was all psychological, but 
that's just as interesting, even if it was like, you know, um, if let, let's say this all happened in their head, that to me is just as fascinating as if um, aliens came down, right? Because yeah. you're, you're talking about a shift in a mindset that happens between two people that's so strong that their entire life becomes wrapped up around it. You know, they didn't make mm. that much money off of this experience. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, they went and sold a book and all this stuff. Well, well first of all, back in the 50s, you know, I don't know that UFO abduction books were, was like your pathway to selling a number one bestseller and making money, you know? Um, right. In fact, I remember reading something about like their, when they got paid for their books, like they bought new furniture, you know, they, they cleaned up their house and just did, you know, some basic smart stuff that you would do to your home and that's it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, that's what sets us apart. I think is just, <laughs> just sticking to the facts. Um, Cause the facts are interesting enough. Right. And by any chance, uh, I mean, this was a collective piece. I want to say back in 2017, 2018, Wonder Spaces, they had, uh, and I know that's a traveling, you know, uh, art museum sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, Scott Sell here gets it once every three months where they change out the exhibit. They bring something new. Topic was VR. When I went down to see it and uh, just by doing research on you and then just doing research on uh, Barney and, and Betty Hill, one of the topics covered was uh, that whole scenario. So it was all filmed in VR. So my ex oh, and I wow. actually went to it and oh, we were man. just like, wow, this, you know, was based on true experiences. Uh, so by any chance, did you see the exhibit at all? No, no, I didn't even know about it. But that sounds uh, absolutely amazing. If I can find it, I'll go ahead and tweet it at you, uh, the exact name of it. So, because I'm pretty sure even though it's filmed in VR, you can still probably find it on, on YouTube. Yeah, even uh, just seeing any, any of, of, of how it was set up and, and, you know, what they tackled with it would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, uh, it was a really good Hollywood cast as well. And like the effects were superbly done. So I oh, just, nice. yeah, I was just curious if you drew influence from that as well. Uh, it was actually pretty, pretty cool. I do recommend checking it out. Oh, cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. You know, mo most of the influences for me were because it, it took place in the 50s. So I was just thinking very much in like older art style. Mm -hmm. So it was Alex Toth, um, Darwin Cook doing um, uh, Parker was an influence because when it's called Blue Book, like the very first thing you think, about, oh, we'll just do it all on blue tones, which then led me to, you know, a lot of the way Darwin Cook uh, tackled a lot of his work. Um so those were sort of big influences aesthetically were, were you know, sort of retro 50s, Alex Toth kind of, kind of older yeah. stuff. Yeah. Which actually leads me into my next question. Uh, you've, you're used to drawing otherworldly creatures, even gods themselves with working on Thor. Was it hard trying to convey or come up with a simplistic, yet yeah, eye-catching aliens, little gray people with this book? Because it, it's simple, but it's still catches the eye and it's from what i've seen it it really truly you know it's beautiful just to see it on the pages thank you thank you very much it was a challenge and it was a challenge because the iconology of aliens and that, that gray alien look which was really cemented by whitley streeper's book uh, communion on the cover of this book there is just this really striking alien figure that's become the, the classic uh, alien with big almond-shaped eyes and big head and thin neck and, and that image is so struck into our heads, it's hard to fight against even. And Betty and Barney Hill's abduction, their story, uh, they have a, 
uh, they have a slightly different physicality to them. They're more human. And again, as I talk about like how the, the phenomena has changed and morphs with us over the years, these early accounts um, like didn't have longer necks. Um, they, they, they didn't have particularly thin bodies. And yet I still ended up giving them on the thinner side of things, almost like dancers. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't go like, <laughs> like as thin as you see in a, in a lot of the, the films and stuff. Um, and I had to really fight to keep their eyes from not getting too large because that they had almond shaped eyes, but they weren't giant. They, they mm-hmm. weren't huge, which, which they became later on. And neither were their heads They're, They did have like sort of higher cheekbone structure, but it wasn't the same as we're used to now. So, so weirdly, I, it, and unfortunately, as the book goes on, you'll see that alien form take over more. It's, it's, there's something very, not just iconic about it. There must be something instinctive, instinctual about it. Something that the human mind reacts to um, because it kept pulling me in that direction, despite knowing that's not what I wanted to do. So it was challenging. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what was interesting too, was when I was successful in drawing them with the smaller eyes and, and more human proportions, they're creepier because they're more familiar as opposed to being more alien. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite the challenge. And uh, Jackie says that uh, the first issue is very reminiscent of the movie Signs uh, when you see the alien oh, yeah. walk by and the found footage on TV. So it's really hmm. simple, but still brings that spine chilling feeling to it. <laughs> that's that's what we're hoping for. You know, both both James and I were very influenced. Like we love Signs, and there's um there was an old television series hosted by Leonard Nimoy called In Search of, and you can find those on YouTube and I'm sure streaming elsewhere. It had such a great, creepy feel to it that was accessible. It felt like somebody was telling you a ghost story. Um, and despite this being about aliens, that's kind of the vibe we wanted to, to grab. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that, like, that, yeah, that kind of creepiness <laughs> of in the corner of your eye came, came through. Thank you. Uh, you guys, I don't know. I don't know if you, again, NDAs, I don't know if you can say, uh, but Unsolved Mysteries has really, you know, brought a lot of uh, mm-hmm. alien or extraterrestrial stuff into yeah. uh, our medium and media. So you use, are you using that uh, as a reference or at any point or just not even bothering with Unsolved, uh, Unsolved Mysteries? Oh, no, I love Unsolved Mysteries. Um, and it was another show that um, really helped mainstream a lot of stuff that people would have normally laughed at. And I'm sure when those episodes would air, you know, cause usually they were about like murders and crimes and stuff. And then, but when you mm-hmm. do like these supernatural stuff, I'm sure people snickered at first, but then we're able to give it some time to think about or to listen to and just open up their mind a little bit. Um, so I wouldn't say that the show was, was, was influential, but you know, if, if you liked insert, I mean, if, if you liked, um, unsolved mysteries it fits in that bill it is it is a straightforward telling of the stories like they like they did you know and they did justice to a lot of these stories by um again not getting too too deep into um theorizing and just kind of reporting what what happened in these these weird stories and stuff okay also jackie would like to know if there's any chance we'll see scully or Mulder from x-files hitting one of these issues mm. uh, kind of a where's waldo easter egg or like a little cameo from them Certainly, if we do stories like like maybe Rendlesham Forest, that's well, that took place in the eighties. So we'd have to find something that took place in the nineties. And I would love to to get like um, Mulder's poster in there, the "I Want to Believe." It's like I feel like I'm a living embodiment of the "I Want to Believe" poster. It's, it's not that I do believe this thing. Like I want the experience. I want to mm-hmm. see what you know. I want I want some proof. 
Um, my wife and I have gone out tons to um, go star watching and stuff and hope to see something. We, we went down to a UFO convention with uh, Bob Shrek down in uh, <laughs> Palm, Palmdale. And uh, that was amazing, but we never really seen anything. So like, we want to believe, we want to see some proof. We want to see something interesting, you know? <laughs> All right. So yeah, that's how I, I the, the, the poster I'd probably put in there uh, for sure. If I could. Okay. <laughs> I have to keep an eye out for it. Like, oh, it's right there. Point it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, now just stepping a little bit off from uh, your current project, uh, I do want to know what was uh, running through your head or how did it feel to not only win, but also be automated, uh, nominated for an Eisner Award? It was so crazy. Um, I mean, this, this happened uh, very early. One, didn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, we we uh, Powers won. I believe it was best new series um, for Eisner in like two thousand one or two, something like that, um, or maybe it was two thousands or early two thousands. Um, and it mm-hmm. was basically like a year or two after the book came out, and it's it was just surreal, you know, um, you know, because creator on comics is what I'd always set out to do, even when I didn't know what creator on comics was, you know, um, mm-hmm. and then to be able to receive it with Eisner being there and I got to meet him um, with somebody who became my best friend, Brian Bendis um, on a book that we loved and then continued to do for 20 years. I mean, it was, it was just, it was overwhelming at the time, but also over so quickly, it was like a, it was like a fever dream, you know, uh, <laughs> and it's wonderful to, to, to have done that. And because, and it's been good for my ego and, and I don't mean like in a way of like, I won an Eisner, like it, it helped me after that. I don't think about the awards and stuff anymore, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was I was blessed enough to be able to, to get one, so it took the pressure off. <laughs> like, well, I'm not being appreciated, or this or that, or you know. So I was very, again, very blessed and very lucky to have had that happen in the early on, and and um, you know, check that little um, bucket <laughs> list, you know. <laughs> and you brought up ego, and you uh, you absolutely have no ego. You are super, super humble, and I love yeah. that. <laughs> I, I definitely have an ego and it, you know, the, I, because I, I work at not having bad ego, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate that. <laughs> I believe there's a new term, but I'm not going to say it on air. <laughs> That's what, I definitely comb my hair in a very specific way. You know, I have some ego going on there, you know. <laughs> you definitely have a lot of swag and, uh, you know, and you definitely, yeah, you're doing a good job. So thank you. <laughs> and then, so I had a conversation with uh, N.K. Perker and Willow Wilson yesterday. They said that the uh, Eisner Awards are like the Oscars to comic books. Is this true? I want to get your opinion on this as well. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the big, it's the big reward or award, you know. And again, I'm tainted because I, I, you know, I was lucky enough to win early on in my career. So, like, I don't want to shrug off the acknowledgement that you get from stuff. I, I don't know. I just get, I get mixed feelings a lot with anything that's not the work that makes any sense. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal to get. And, and I hope everybody gets one because um, it is a good feeling. Um, it's also a good feeling just to get it out of your head because mm-hmm. it, when you can concentrate and, and appreciate just the work and you're, you're not thinking about that stuff, even when that time comes around, be, because we get so much, like we're, we're so public facing for as much praise as we get. We also just get random crap you know you'll get people saying that you ruined their favorite thing 
you'll get people saying that your art sucks or your writing sucks or, you know, just random attacks and stuff. So we, we have enough to worry about it, you know, um, when it comes to like our public perception. And then I think when award time comes around, sometimes people will put a sense of self-value of themselves or of their work onto either being nominated or not. It's just seemed, it seems like a lot of pressure, I think, that, that unfortunately people put themselves through. But again, maybe I'm just speaking like that because I was lucky enough to, to win a billion years ago. Yeah, so I, 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 I don't know. I, if, I feel like I'm uh, saying the wrong thing here. <laughs> I don't think you are. And... I guess because you, maybe because you compared it to the Oscars, and I always see the Oscars <laughs> as a prom for rich people. Like, let's celebrate the rich, well-off elite people. And, you know, you know that I don't like. <laughs> but I feel like the answers and, and comic book boards uh, nominating and, and acknowledging people's work. Okay. No, I, I get it. I see it. Uh, so another thing too is, uh, and you brought this up is uh, when you do get negative feedback, uh, having worked on, you know, multiple Marvel comics written, had a tons of productions uh, with, you know, media uh, mm-hmm. TV shows actually, or movies being made from your work and also written for uh, Dark Horse, when you do get that negative feedback, how do you deal with it? How do you react? Because I, some people can just blow up and like, you know, drop, drop F-bombs like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, kid, blah, 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 blah. So how do you deal with it? Luckily, I have grown up with a very low self-opinion of myself, <laughs> something which I've worked <laughs> on as I've gotten older and stuff. But weirdly, that helped. It, it helped not having a big ego where like it hurt when somebody said something that it sucked, you know, cause like there's part of me that agrees with it. Like <laughs> the first thing I do when I get my books in print is I look to see what's wrong, you know, uh, what did, it, how did I mishandle the file or what did I draw badly and this face is going to be crooked and all of that, you know, there, there can be a gang up thing that can happen sometimes with social media that I don't like. That's, that's different. It's, it's harder to, to push back, but um, so much of making comics is about putting your ego aside and, and your ego isn't just the, like I said, the bad ego, like the, the arrogance part, part of it is your, your, your self doubts, you know, like um, the imposter syndrome stuff. And like what I said, mm-hmm. I, that I have a self opinion, low self opinion about myself. I don't let that get in the way of the work. Um, I separated just like I do my bad ego of, of um, thinking I'm great or, you know, I've done a really good job at this or I've won blah, blah, blah. I have to put all of that aside to, to do the work. And that includes, um, the negative stuff, you know? So mm-hmm. in, a, in a weird way, it's this nice little shield to have, you know, um, I just separate myself from the work and how people react to it. And, you know, you just, you can never please everybody all the time. And there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like, like the work, you know, um, and you have to accept that. But I think doing the work is so important. You have to separate all of your ego from it, including, you know, um, people saying negative things. Um, and hopefully that's helpful to people struggling with it because, um, again, I'm 50. I've been doing it for 30 years. I've grown a thick layer of skin and it's a little easier for me to say. Um, but if you're, if you're new and starting out, just try and separate yourself from the work, you know, um, and especially what strangers say. It's, it's weird that we react so strongly and I've done it to social media negativity. You know, if somebody on the street just said something weird to you, you wouldn't care, you know, I mean, you might care for a second, like, why do you yell at me about my shirt or whatever, you know, (laughs) but you know, it wouldn't ruin your day. Whereas like, you know, a stranger tells you that they didn't like the way you wrote or drew something. 
somehow we give that weight, you know, they're still just a stranger on the internet. It's the same thing as a stranger in the street. So just trying not to let it affect you. Wow. It's a pretty wise words. Thank you. <laughs> I will say I hate reviews where like, if you have a book that, and, and this is hurtful, like there'll be a book that gets good reviews. And then one person will do like a one-star review right now, a one-star review on a comic is almost impossible to get. Like it's, you, you, I've never really been seen a one, like the worst I could imagine that I've ever seen of a comic would be like two out of five stars. But I've had like books that were, were averaging their rate pretty well. And mm-hmm. then one person would, would give it a one star review and that would bring it all the way down to like a three or something. Oof. And that hurts because it hurts um, sales. It hurts when people right. are looking at your book and they, they see ratings on it and stuff. Um, that's one of the shittiest things that you can do. That's, that's much worse than calling me any name or saying I suck. <laughs> I shouldn't give people ideas now. People will be out there just hitting one star reviews on all my shit. <laughs> <laughs> and Jackie says every comic has something good to offer. Might not be hitting on every cylinder, but they all bring something good. And I agree. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Just the fact that they've done it, you know, like there are so many people who, like my wife and I, are always encouraging people to just do the work. You know, to just if you want to make a comic, just make it. Um, because a comic that fails or doesn't do well is so much better than something that was never done or, or, or actualized, you know? Right. Uh, many people stop themselves from achieving their, gene, their dreams or moving forward um, by just not doing anything out of fear. Um, and look, I've done plenty of books that aren't very good, <laughs> you know? Um, and at the time I thought they were good or, you know, um, you have to fail to move forward and, and you can't be afraid of that stuff. Again, put your ego aside. Even mm-hmm. your 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 fear of failure is part of your ego. And you put that aside and just do the work. Absolutely. And since uh, we only have a few more moments here, what can you tell us about Murder Inc., uh, your, your book that's going to be coming out soon? Ah, so excited about this new volume. Um, so it's it's Brian Bendis and, and I and my wife Taki Soma. She's coloring. Um, it's been a, a it's our favorite thing that we've done together outside of powers um and um we had like two volumes already out this is the third and it's about jagger's um the journey through the mafia and basically our version of the mafia is that we asked the question what if the fbi never took down the mafia during the 60s and 70s what would america look like so it's this alternative history of um what america could look like um and it's really weird because uh, reality is hard to keep up with <laughs> and, uh, like sort of our conclusion of, you know, what is the next step of, of the mafia in, in the United States if it got bigger and it would just kind of look like corporations. Um, and then the more we learn about like corporate crimes, the closer they are to real mafia crimes and stuff. So it's been hard Oof. keeping up, but, um, <laughs> got some really crazy, interesting stuff going on. Uh, the Vatican shows up and what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's one of our biggest storylines and we're doing something really interesting with the covers for the six issues, which I don't want to spoil yet, but I'm just saying, keep an eye out for it. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, Jackie and I are sold on this. So I will definitely be picking up volume three. (laughs) Yay. And also uh, just to wrap things up, um, I do like ending things on a great note or a happy note. So you have been in the comic industry for, you know, 20, 30 plus years. Uh, however, if you could give your give your younger self any piece of advice, uh, what would that 
piece of advice v don't try and make films <laughs> <laughs> there was there was a time in the 90s i was trying to make um independent films i was very influenced by what like robert Rodriguez was doing and it felt a lot like comics you know the language of it and i read his book about you know just kind of do it yourself kind of stuff and spent a lot of money and time figuring out that uh oh it's hard <laughs> <laughs> um so maybe I, I would say that uh also to just stick more to powers you know because i was young with powers so it was mm-hmm. um while we worked on it for 20 years and i'm very proud of what we did i my only regret is that i just didn't get more issues out you know because there was times where the success of powers led to other things like trying to make films and stuff like that and um those distractions kept me from like doing what uh, Charlie Adler has done on the walking dead, which I'm yeah. in such awe of is he just pounded out every single issue for years and just didn't let it wane or get distracted. And um, a little bit more of that would have been, would have been awesome. Well, you, again, you have an impressive uh, portfolio and resume and uh, I know your art is uh, on the internet and it's all very impressive. So I think you've done a really good job oh, you know, from you. your entire career. So, and it's still growing. So that's amazing. Thank you. Thank and, you very much. You're welcome. And lastly, where can we find you? Uh, what are your socials? Uh, any upcoming projects you can talk about without breaking any NDAs? Sure. Uh, any public appearances such as uh, comic conventions that you can talk about? Um, next week here in Portland, um, I think it's the 14th or 15th, we have to check, um, at the Hollywood Theater, James Tinian is flying out. We're going to do a, a showing of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, Dark Horse has printed up um, limited issue covers for Blue Book, and we're going to do a Q&A. So it's a whole little event there. If you check out um, the Dark Horse site or the Hollywood Theater site in Portland, you'll get more information. Or my socials, um, which are easy because of my name, O-E-M-I-N-G, um, on Twitter and Instagram, at, I'm at Oming. And uh, if you just search my name out on uh, YouTube, you can find a whole lot of um, videos for um, like kind of how I do things and advice on on art and stuff uh and the last project we could talk about is i have a book called project monarch which is tangentially tied into um project blue book because or blue book because of uh, some alien information but (laughs) it is all wild wacky conspiracy satire it's sort of uh if um it sort of delves into a lot of the the stanley kubrick uh conspiracy film stuff and (laughs) ultra and and it's just crazy and hopefully funny and uh, lands well. We'll see. And that comes out in September as a, as a graphic novel. And the art's done by myself and Victor Santos, who's the co-creator. And he did that comic Polar, which was a great series on Netflix. And um, it's great to work with him again. So so there you go. My socials are at Oming. We're doing a thing at the Hollywood Theater. The next thing after uh, Blue Book and, um, and Murder, Inc. Is, is, is Project Monarch, all through Dark Horse. Awesome. Well, uh, just lastly, uh, you can find us on uh, on our website at gneaz.com or geek-network.com. All of our socials across the board are at GeeksAZ. And then you can find uh, this podcast and many other interviews and other podcasts under Fandom Sessions. Just want to say thank you so much, Michael. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope you enjoyed the rest of your weekend. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Artless.io.